HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Roth Cheese, a pioneer in the U.S. specialty cheese movement. For more information, visit RothCheese.com. I'm HRN's Communications Director, Kat Johnson, with a preview of this week's episode of Meat and Three, our weekly food news roundup. We decided it's high time we do an episode about Mary Jane. Marijuana, things are happening. That's right. This episode is about pot. We're exploring the rhetoric surrounding legalization in New York's recent gubernatorial primaries. And a cheesemonger turned cannabis consultant shares the tricks of the trade. Great. So do you want to conquer the world? Do you want to have hazy eyes? Do you want to, you know, just relax all day and be floaty? And we find out how one exemplary South Carolina farmer is trying his hand at a new crop. Every plant that comes up from seed is different. And so it's it's learning how the plant grows, how it responds, and then familiarizing myself and my senses with this plant. Plus, Hannah Forden and I taste test the hottest new cocktail ingredient, CBD. So subscribe to Meat and 3 wherever you listen to podcasts and be the first to know when the newest episode of Meat and 3 drops. Hello, this is Diane Stemple on Heritage Radio Network's Cutting the Curd. Today, I have the author of Successful Cheesemaking, Meryl Winstein. Hello. Hello, Meryl. Hi, Diane. How are you? Oh, I'm doing great. That's, How about you? I'm pretty good. Nice weather here in New York. It's almost, it feels like fall today. Mm-hmm. How about St. Louis? Yes, St. Louis is still green, but you can feel fall in the air. I love this time of year. Yeah, me too. Okay, in case some of our listeners have not seen your impressive tome, it's a large, heavy, two-volume set, which is called Successful Cheesemaking, and the subtitle is... Step-by-step instructions and photos for making nearly every type of cheese. It's amazing. It's gigantic. How, how, however, 
did you, oh, the first volume is Beginning Through Cheddar, and the second volume is Ripening Through Index. So, Meryl, when did you decide to write this book? Well, I wrote this big, red, successful cheesemaking book in order to answer all my questions about cheesemaking. Uh-huh. And I also wrote my book, big, successful cheesemaking book, in order to answer all the questions asked by the over 3,000 people that have come to my cheesemaking workshops mm-hmm. during uh, many years. I really got the idea for it. When I first took a professional-level cheesemaking class from Jim Wallace in Massachusetts, Mm -hmm. and at that point, I realized just what was supposed to happen when you were making cheese. I'd been making cheese wrong for many years. (laughs) And, yeah, in his class, I saw what I'd been doing wrong and why, and I thought, well, I'll just take my 50-page booklet that I normally give out in my cheesemaking workshops and just expand it a little bit and make it a little bit more corrected, and then I'll be ready to go. People will know how simple cheesemaking can be, how they can make artisan cheese at home, the best mm-hmm. kind of cheese. Mm-hmm. So eight years later, and six hundred and almost 650 pages later, right. I finished. I just had to put a stop to it, even though I still could come up with more questions. Right. Now, did you initially, so you did not initially plan it the way it turned out? No, not at all. I thought it would be very short. How did the idea evolve, though? I mean, did it just, did you just keep putting in more recipes? Well, baking cheese is actually very simple, Mm -hmm. but um, whether you're making hard renneted cheese that's mm-hmm. aged or whether you're making non-renneted cheese that is finished just about right when you make it. Mm-hmm. But to explain it step by step and make sure every word is totally clear, nothing's mixed up or backwards, mm-hmm. doing that just expanded everything. Mm-hmm. When you're making cheese, you can't really just say um, stir for 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. In my book, I have to say, stir in this way, mm-hmm. stir this quickly, because if you do it slower, the cheese will be too wet. Or if you mm-hmm. do it faster, this mm-hmm. other thing will happen. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the 20 minutes, it should look like this or that. Mm-hmm. And so every uh, every direction that there is is fully explained, and that just made the book really long. <laughs> but it's complete. Yeah. I really found that I just couldn't cut anything out. Okay. Now, you teach cheesemaking in St. Louis and elsewhere? Yes, I do. Mm -hmm. I'll travel anywhere to do a cheesemaking class. Okay. Does that mean you already had all the complete recipes that appear in the book? You mean... um in well, your head, in your head, or oh, you, in my head, yeah. You'd I already can do it without the book, right? Right. You'd already made them. You'd already made all these types of cheese. Yeah, most of the eight hundred photos in my book are pictures of cheeses that I made. Mm-hmm. And how were they fine tuned for publication? Were they tested? Were they tested by novices? Were they tested by your students? Oh, okay. Well, the way these recipes were tested, first of all, these are professional recipes that I've learned at cheesemaking classes Mm -hmm. or traditional recipes that traditional cheesemakers showed me. Mm -hmm. 
when you make them at whenever you take instructions you've had from someone else, mm-hmm. it takes some adjusting to um, make them work with the milk that you have. Mm-hmm. I raised dairy goats in our backyard in St. Louis, Missouri, for about 22 years. Mm-hmm. Um, so the way that they were tested was by either me making them over and over again mm-hmm. or by using these in the classroom. Mm-hmm. I would watch how people in my cheese making workshops use these recipes um, and what they ask and where they're mixed up and mm-hmm. where they mm-hmm. don't pay attention and mm-hmm. what's significant for them to learn. So in my successful cheese making book, I emphasize those points in particular. Mm, the ones that people have questions about or do wrong. Well, the steps that they yeah. have questions yeah. about or that they do wrong or that they read of in other books and then the other books are wrong and giving mm-hmm. out wrong instructions. Mm-hmm. So we really, you know, I emphasize uh, what you are supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And it's really fun when people say, oh, my gosh, but I've been reading this other thing all these years. I said, yeah, I know that. Because <laughs> you did that, too. your cheese turn out wrong. <laughs> now, what mistakes do you find people make over and over in cheese making? Well, these are mistakes that are the product of um, not having better information to go by. Mm-hmm. So people that go in for either the hobby or the business of opening up an artisan cheese plant, um, they're using information that may not, uh, sometimes they're using information from books that may not have been very exact in the first place. Mm-hmm. And some of the first few books written on this have been plagiarized and then plagiarized over and over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. So the same mistakes are repeated in lots and lots of books mm-hmm. and information, and, and it gives you the impression that those things are correct. Mm-hmm. So here are the couple of most um, popular problems. Mm-hmm. One is people have read that you can use bottled supermarket pasteurized milk of different kinds for mm-hmm. making rennetted cheese, a mm-hmm. hard cheese that has an enzyme rennet added to it. Mm-hmm. Usually that kind of milk will not work for making hard rennetted cheese mm-hmm. because the proteins have been overheated even in milk that says low temperature pasteurized. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because they, um, it won't uh, coagulate with the rennet or whatever the word is called? That's right. The mm-hmm. even the the low temperature pasteurized milk um, sometimes is pasteurized at the correct temperature, but mm. sometimes it's been overheated. And right. years ago, the milk wasn't uh, always pasteurized as high a temperature as it is now. Mm-hmm. But whenever milk proteins are overheated, if anything in the pot in the vat of milk gets over one seventy F, then the Whey proteins denature. Those are a certain kind of protein, mm-hmm. and they interfere with how rennet makes the proteins and calciums bond together so that mm-hmm. the curds will be firm mm-hmm. and also will contract and squeeze out whey. Mm-hmm. So in my book, Successful Cheese Making, I describe exactly the process mm-hmm. by which that happens mm-hmm. and why the milk that says low temperature pasteurized sometimes really isn't pasteurized at such a low temperature. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the vat that they use actually has sidewalls that are 
over 170, maybe mm-hmm. even hotter. And so as the milk is rotates through the vat to make low-temperature pasteurized milk, each individual protein comes in contact with the hot heating plate and individually becomes overpasteurized. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the vat stays 145 or 155 as it should, but the individual particles of milk have been overheated. Mm-hmm. Or some of them surprising have. Thing to learn. Right. Did you uh-huh. make the same mistakes in the beginning when you oh, were? Yeah. I made all the mistakes, every mistake. <laughs> Another really common mistake is that people put in too much rennet yeah. enzyme mm-hmm. and too much calcium chloride. And this is something they've read in one book after another after another. You should never be using more than one-eighth of a teaspoon of rennet mm-hmm. in, um, per gallon mm-hmm. for good renneted cheeses. So um, some of the earlier books, and I remember buying rennet from a supplier years ago, and on in the books or even on this jar, it would say use a half teaspoon rennet per gallon or two teaspoons rennet per gallon. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they would say the same for calcium chloride, which is something that helps milk coagulate when you're making cheese. Mm-hmm. So in my book, Successful Cheese Making, it describes exactly why Using too much rennet causes mm-hmm. the cheese to become wet and sour and mm. bitter. Ugh. Um, yeah, it's really, and I did that for years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it was just very frustrating. <laughs> now, what kept you going in the beginning of your home cheese making before you started taking those very helpful courses? What kept you going? That's really a good question, because I don't really understand why I kept at it for 10 or 15 years when it wasn't working. Was it because you had goats in the backyard? Yeah, it was. It was partly because I had gotten those goats, had, and were I wanted some to make of, cheese. Were some of the cheeses better than others? Occasionally, they turn out really good. Uh huh. And so I thought, oh, I'm, I'm starting to get the hang of it. But that's really not how cheese making works. And I've had people in my workshop say, you know, I just thought practice would make perfect. And if I keep working on it long enough, but that won't happen. If you have good directions in the first place, you can do this within, you know, not a very long time. But if the directions are bad in the first place, it's never going to work, no matter how many years you keep on carefully following this direction. So did you eat the bad cheese? Or did you throw it away? (laughs) Well, actually, I'd have the bad cheese, and my family wouldn't eat it. And I felt insulted. I'm sure. But actually, I didn't want to eat it either. (laughs) So So you were trying to push bad cheese on them. (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, I had tried to make this cheese. Right. But, you know. I knew that I was making good cheese when, after a while, my husband at the time, he started asking me if we have any cheese in the house. So that's <laughs> when I knew my cheese was coming out good. Okay. And that was very rewarding to have right. cheese my family liked. Right. Can you tell us your cheese eating history, starting with visiting <laughs> Denmark at 14 years old? Yes, that would be fun. That's actually where all of this started. Yes. As a, a normal American kid, yeah. I liked cheese, mm-hmm. and cheese for us, for our family, meant um, Kraft American singles wrapped in plastic. Right. I thought it was really adventurous when my mom started getting the white kind. 
so that meant we had the orange kind and the white kind. Oh, okay. Both wrapped in plastic? Yeah. Okay, good. I mean, I'm not really sure they tasted different. (laughs) (laughs) And then when I was 14, I had a Girl Scout pen pal in Denmark. Mm -hmm. And I traveled there alone to visit her and to go to an international Girl Scout encampment where there were 6,000 girls from all over the world. Oh, wow. It was really, really fun. Mm-hmm. Your parents and let I, you go by yourself. Yeah, they did. They, you cool. know, My mom and dad said, if you can earn the money, you can go. And I wish they were alive now because I wonder if they said that thinking I would never get the money together. <laughs> but I did. Mm-hmm. I sold, um, oh, like decoupage uh, keychains and pins and things at school, mm-hmm. and I um, babysat a lot. In those mm-hmm. days, you got 50 to 75 cents an hour, <laughs> 75 cents on New Year's. <laughs> so, yeah, so I um, I got there to Denmark. Everything was different. Mm. The food was different. The language, I don't even remember hearing it because I didn't, I just I had to shut it out. I couldn't even hear it. And my pen pal spoke English. Mm-hmm. I, um, and did her parents? Um, no, her dad didn't talk to me, and her mom, I maybe she knew a little bit of English, but her mom was really nice. She smiled, and mm-hmm. she made food for us and took us places, so mm-hmm. that was great. She filled a really nice mom role. She's 97. I just saw her last week, and she's still very perky for ni- like for 97. She's wow. slow, but she, still, <laughs> she can speak some English, and um, wow. she enjoys seeing me. Well, anyway, um, I stayed at their house for about a month, Mm -hmm. and I somehow had this idea that I should eat exactly what they eat and do exactly what they eat at the house in Denmark. Mm -hmm. And I don't know where I got this idea, but that's what I did. Mm. So whenever her family would serve cheese, for example... It was strange, but I ate it. And mm-hmm. this this strange cheese that they fed me, it was absolutely delicious. Mm-hmm. It was just delicious. And I'd never <laughs> tasted anything like it. Mm-hmm. But years later, my pen pal, Gunhel, told me, did you know that my dad, who was in the cheese-making business all his life, made sure that we only had the best cheeses on our table and that he and my mom drove all over Denmark to find them? All the time or just for your visit? Oh, always. Yeah, oh. because he'd, he'd been born into a cheese-making and creamery family, so mm-hmm. he knew what was really mm-hmm. good and exactly mm-hmm. which dairy had the best, and that was all they would serve in that house. Okay, so you were giving the the best of the best, and then, I'm sure, Denmark yeah. cheeses were uh, a million times better than American. Oh, my gosh, yes. <laughs> and at that that particular time period... That was about the epitome of Danish cheesemaking. There were about mm-hmm. 500 cheesemaking plants in Denmark at that time mm-hmm. in 1970. By 1975, a lot of them had consolidated and gone out of business, so there were only 250. Mm-hmm. And um, so I was there eating the best artisan cheesemaking, artisan cheese, like little... Um, you know, each town had a cheesemaking plant mm-hmm. in those days, mm-hmm. kind of like the United States had maybe around up till that time or earlier. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was eating the best 
artisan cheese, artisan, what we would now call artisan-style cheese, that there was to eat mm-hmm. in that part of Denmark. Mm-hmm. It was, and those flavors stayed with me. And then so, you went to Canada, I think. Next yes, stop, Canada um, for cheese? <laughs> a few years later, I was in Canada, and I was um, working in a food co-op. They had all kinds of cheese. There were many British cheeses, mm-hmm. Cheshire, Philly, I don't even know how to pronounce them, Weister. Mm-hmm. They were delicious. Mm-hmm. And again, totally different than what I ate in the United States. Mm-hmm. But after I left there and came back to St. Louis, I, I really didn't think about them very much. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until I um, got married years later and we bought a house that had a very large yard in the St. Louis, Missouri suburb of Webster Groves. Mm-hmm. And there I got dairy goats and mm-hmm. chickens. Mm-hmm. I found that the law, uh, the municipal law, had always provided for having goats and chickens in Webster Grove. So mm-hmm. I got them, mm-hmm. and I imagined that I would start making delicious cheese, just like I'd <laughs> eaten in Denmark. <laughs> okay, we're going to take a break. <laughs> okay. I'm talking to Meryl Winstein about her book, Successful Cheesemaker Making. We'll be right back. Today's program was brought to you by Roth Cheese, a pioneer in the U.S. specialty cheese movement. Roth is in its 25th year of making specialty cheese in the rolling hills of southern Wisconsin. With strong Swiss heritage, Roth is best known for its award-winning alpine-style cheeses under the name Grand Cru. Fresh Wisconsin milk combined with expertise in affinage is how Roth creates high-quality, great-tasting cheese year after year. In 2016, hard work paid off when out of over 2,000 contenders, Roth Grand Cru Surchois was named world champion at the World Cheese Championship. For more information, visit rothcheese.com. From the Next time you step up for the intention, remember most the great distinction between your life. Okay. Back again, talking to Meryl Winstein about successful cheesemaking. I love the pictures. Thank you. Now, mostly, I mostly love, I have to admit, the small proportion of pictures that have um, non-cheesemaking photos. Oh, you like those? Yes, like the cheddar wall, the cheddar wall at Neil's Yard Dairy. Uh-huh. That was a that's one of the first pictures and I love it. <laughs> um, I'm glad you like that. I I've, so, I've had some people wonder why I put in pictures that weren't of cheese making or they had other extraneous things in the No, in the they were delightful. They were delightful cuz they were, you know, to a non I'm not reading the book to make the cheese. I'm mm-hmm. amazed at all the pictures and all the uh curd uh, formation you can see page after page after of curds pretty much mm-hmm. um, but I loved the non-cheese making photos they were like a little treat thank you <laughs> anyway. well I like to show the context um, she's mm-hmm. like there's a picture in uh, volume 2 about a tapestry showing 
golden cow herding in the 15th century Netherlands. Yes, I think um, I saw because, that one too. Yeah, because people were raising goats and cows and sheep and other milk animals then and making cheese then mm-hmm. of now, raw milk. Now, why did you decide to go for black and white photos? Is that better for instruction? I think that black and white, the 800 black and white photos in successful cheese making show the textures better. Mm -hmm. Um, When you're making cheese, you really need to feel the textures and see the textures and shapes of things. Yes. Black and white shows the light and shadows the moisture or dryness. Mm-hmm. Black and white, well, I've been an illust- a hand illustrator in black and white most of my life. And mm-hmm. black and white, I, I like it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's cheaper to print. These books would have cost so much more to print if they were in color. Oh, gosh. And also black and white, the black ink will stay black in the book. When you have color photos, I mean, there are a lot of cheese-making books where they've got color photos, and every picture shows yellow and white curds. Mm-hmm. They don't show the light and shadows, and then the colors of the ink fade after 10 or 20 years. Ah, so, they, so uh, these books are meant to last. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I'm glad, because as long as successful cheese-making is in print and you have a paper copy, these uh, recipes and methods are tied down where they can't get away, mm-hmm. and they're usable. Mm-hmm. I also liked seeing the title of this show, Cutting the Curd, that popped up (laughs) often in your book because you're talking Mm -hmm. about cutting the curd. And I think that, I don't know for sure, I'll have to check with her, but I think Ann Saxelby, when she devised the name of the show, she meant it sort of as a reference to cheese gossip or talk. Sort of oh, like, really? well, sort of like shooting the shit, uh, yeah. we're cutting the curd. <laughs> okay, yeah, I can, I can see that. But I'll have to check with her about that. Um, also, you got a very nice compliment from Ricky Carroll, who describes the book as delightfully refreshing and thoroughly detailed. Mm-hmm. And it certainly is thoroughly detailed. Oh, yeah, it is. I have to agree with that. That's why it took so long to write it. It took eight years to write this with all those details. Now, I have a question, just like a a little question. On, Mm -hmm. on, there's so many blue cheeses in the world, Mm -hmm. Uh and it doesn't always depend on the type of milk. I mean, you know, the type of milk informs the cheese, but doesn't totally dictate the taste. Where does your blue cheese fall, taste-wise? <laughs> well, when you make it at home, yes, it varies. Yes. Um, so my blue cheese is, since I just make one at a time, Yeah. and I don't have a production line going where I'm just aiming for exactly the same one each time, they right. simply vary. Some uh-huh. are milder, some are stronger, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but my book, Successful Cheese Making, describes the principles Mm-hmm. of making, for example, blue cheese or any of the others, cheddar, mm-hmm. anything else, so that when you use these principles to make your blue cheese or your cheddar mm-hmm. following the directions in this book, yeah. um, you'll understand how, it, you know, how it's done. Mm-hmm. And then it varies depending on your circumstances or how you're ripening it. If you want it to come out completely consistent, 
successful cheese making has charts in the back where you can record um, the steps you went through are yes. printed and you can write down the pH if you have a pH meter mm-hmm. or the temperature mm-hmm. so that you can aim for matching up your subsequent batches to the way chart was for last time. Uh-huh. Um, other than that, when you make artisan cheese at home, it just doesn't always come out exactly the same flavor right. as last time. Mm-hmm. And that's not really what you aim for when you're doing it uh, with just one cheese at a time. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then uh, somebody who's going into business uses the processes in successful cheese making. I mean, these are the processes you would use to make the best cheeses mm-hmm. that you would sell. Mm-hmm. But you'd still be working with your method and trying to hone it down so it would come up with a consistent taste that you liked mm-hmm. for selling. Okay. But I, but the, the um, format of my book, Successful Cheese Making, shows how to make all of these at home using home equipment. That's right. what's novel about it. Mm-hmm. You would use the same processes if you were a commercial cheesemaker, but you would use other equipment. But right. This way shows making these things at your own house mm-hmm. with pots and pans. Right. And it works, of course, right. because the, the principles of cheesemaking are the same no matter what vessel you're putting the uh, milk into. Mm-hmm. I also love the title, uh, Easy Cheese for Busy Days. Thank you. <laughs> but but I can't imagine a really busy day with adding in cheese making. You know. Well, that was my life for many, many years. <laughs> That's what I imagined. Yes. You were busy yeah. doing everything in the kitchen and, and was, milking was, the milk. goats. That's right. Adding milking the goats and making cheese and rehabbing a house and having three kids that I was raising and uh-huh. you know, having a marriage. All those things. Um, you must be actually, a very energetic woman. I think I'm energetic, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, this is actually, that page in my book, Successful Cheesemaking, is, answers a question that a lot of people, mostly women, ask mm-hmm. in the class. Yeah. Which cheeses can I make if I'm really busy and I have little kids running around? Yes. So that's why I put that page in, because my aim is to answer everybody's questions. Yes. In my, yes. In my workshops, I actually keep a notebook. And whenever someone writes, asks a question, I write it down. Uh-huh. And in order to finish up this book, I went through all of those notebooks uh-huh. of questions and made <laughs> sure that all of those questions were answered. And uh-huh. then I did the uh, frequently asked questions section at the end. There's about uh, right. 20 pages. Of, right. Those are frequently asked. Those are the most frequently asked. And there are 20 pages of them. Right. Um, they're, now they're all answered. With either references to the pages where they're described or new right. answers in, in the section there. Now, are the easy cheeses for busy days, were those the cheeses you started with making? No, not necessarily. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't necessarily start with the easy type of cheeses that, mm-hmm. are, uh, that don't take much involvement. Mm-hmm. My opinion really is not is that none of these cheeses are harder than the others. Mm-hmm. You often hear that, oh, you should start with, um, let's say, chev mm-hmm. and then slowly move to the other cheeses. Mm-hmm. I don't agree with that at all. Okay. Why I, not? Well, the easier ones simply take fewer steps. So in that way, they're easier. Mm-hmm. But the ones that people think of as harder, they're not really harder or more difficult, but they do have a lot more steps. So mm-hmm. you need to pay more attention for a longer number 
of hours. Mm-hmm. But in in my big red book, Successful Cheese Making, every one of these recipes stands alone. So if you want to start with Havarti, mm-hmm. you can do that because that recipe contains everything you need. Right, right. I've noticed in my classes, people don't always refer back to, let's say, the reference material at the beginning of the book. Mm-hmm. So I made sure everything was put into every recipe. Okay. And some of the directions have a page number where you can turn back and refer to something mm-hmm. else. Mm-hmm. Did you focus on goat cheese first with your own source of milk? Well, when I was first making cheese, I did use my own milk from our goats in the backyard. Mm-hmm. But the the book, Successful Cheese Making, the processes are the same for goat and cow milk, and mm-hmm. they're a little tiny bit different for sheep milk, so I mm-hmm. cover that. But basically, it's the same, mm-hmm. the same processes. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Now, what is your favorite easy cheese to make, and what's your favorite easy cheese to teach? Well, let's see. If we go to the easy ones... Um, You know, I think my favorite easy cheese to make is the one where you just heat up the milk till it simmers, Mm -hmm. and then you start gradually adding some vinegar or other acids. Mm -hmm. I like that because as soon as you add the acid, the milk coagulates or clumps up, Mm -hmm. and it's so surprising looking, and people are amazed this can instantly happen. (laughs) You drain it out, and it's ready to eat. Okay. What's that that called? What's Um, that called? Well, it's called many different things. Sometimes it's, how many names did I put in here? Let me look for this. I think sometimes it's called pot cheese. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's called lemon ricotta. Mm-hmm. Um, queso blanco is another mm-hmm. name. Okay. Sometimes people call that one queso fresco. So those mm-hmm. names are sometimes mixed together. Mm-hmm. What's your favorite more difficult cheese to make and to teach? What are people um, really like floored by? Mm. You know, I like in my cheese making workshops um, when I teach the French Tom and English cloth bound cheddar mm-hmm. in the same workshop. Mm-hmm. The French Tom is a basic medium temperature or what they call mesophilic mm-hmm. cheese. Mm-hmm. So when you, you do all the processes for that, people get to learn exactly the texture they should look for when the curds are ready for draining because it's important to have that correct texture. That shows the moisture level in the cheese, and the moisture level is going to totally control what the cheese will taste like mm-hmm. later on. So they, they learn in my workshops what the moisture level should be uh, and the texture of the curds, and then they proceed to um, drain in the curds and put them in the molds for making the French tongue. Mm-hmm. But we have another pot going at the same time in my workshop doing the same process. And when you get to that point where the curds are ready for draining for the tom, mm-hmm. you actually do some other further steps to make the English cloth-bound cheddar. Mm-hmm. So I like to um, do both. put the two of those together yeah. in my workshops, and people can compare the different methods, and they see how doing one, you know, certain things happen a certain way, and doing the other one, you add some more steps and other certain things, like mm-hmm. completing the right. uh, acid production right. happens a different way. And then in the end, the, the cheddar, it always tastes good in the end. It's, it's one of the easier ones to get to turn out 
really good tasting. Mm. Okay. It's uh, partly because it's drier mm-hmm. than the other cheeses as mm-hmm. you're ripening it. It doesn't tend to get uh, maybe too foggy or something mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. accidentally happens with the ripening. Mm-hmm. Now, and it tastes really good. But you have to wait to taste it. How, how do you, well, pres- how do you uh, wait in a cheese-making class? Do you invite people back? Oh, I see what you're saying. In the actual classes, that's right. When you're making cheese, it's not... Um, it's not going to be finished. Cheese is, yeah, it's not ready to eat that day or the next day. Right. So I bring in samples. I go to Whole Foods oh, or oh, somewhere okay. and get samples, or samples that, I've already, that we've already made in oh, okay. previous class. Okay. That way, that's okay. what they get to taste. Oh, okay. I was wondering, yeah. like, you know, it could be four months, six <laughs> months. Like, do you have a party and everybody comes back? That would be fun. <laughs> I haven't done that, though. Um, now, what's do you still make cheese at home outside of a class or book prep? Um, no, I don't make cheese outside of classes anymore. Mm-hmm. I don't have the goats anymore. Mm-hmm. And it takes a long time to make cheese. And it's really not fun without my family coming in and out. The door okay. they're grown up now, or okay. you know, it's more fun to do it in the in the class. Okay. So I'm glad that I took all the pictures mm-hmm. over all you know many many years about the past ten years mm-hmm. because um, you used them. Then I had them ready when mm-hmm. I was putting this book, successful cheese making together. I had mm-hmm. a big collection of photos. I'm not even taking photos anymore. Mm-hmm. I don't need to. I've got oh. thousands, like thirty. <laughs> 30,000. <laughs> <laughs> what's, what's a cheese you will buy because it's too hard to make? Well, I don't buy any of them because they're too hard to make. Okay. They're all not too hard to make. Okay. Do you buy any? <laughs> I do. I like to buy cheese because then I don't have to go through the time and trouble of making it. So or what the are collection your... of having them. <laughs> what is your... your uh, like if if you had to take a cheese to someone's house, mm-hmm. what would you take? I like to take about well, I aim for about three cheeses, and I usually bring five or seven. <laughs> <laughs> I've um, got that problem. So, <laughs> so I like to go by different styles, and then when I get to their house, we do a cheese tasting. Right, right, right. So. Right. Oh, I tried to be... outsmart you. Oh, really? <laughs> yes, I want to know what cheese you'll buy. Okay, what are the top okay. three cheeses that you would put on a cheese plate for for friends? Okay, I like to bring uh, soft and gooey brie or camembert. Okay. So that's what they call Bloomy Rind Cheese, a soft, gooey cheese that has white mold on the outside. Okay. And that's a milder one, so you taste it first. American yeah. or European? Uh, it it depends on which one I think is going to be the squishiest. Okay. okay. And I've also discovered that at, at Trader Joe's, they have very, very good and very consistent cheese that's um, manufactured to go with that packaging and to be popular with their eaters mm. and their customers. And so mm-hmm. those cheeses are always a really good bet because they are going to definitely always taste good. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't vary. They're made according to strict processes. Mm-hmm. So they're not, they're like artisan style, but very consistent. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we would have a 
a white-covered bloomy rind cheese like Camembert or Brie. Okay. And then I would like to get um, a Gouda, sometimes a goat Gouda. There are mm-hmm. many good goat Goudas, mm-hmm. and they're very, um, they're pretty mild, and they're sweet. And, some, and if it's goat cheese, mm-hmm. you could say, okay, here's what a goat cheese tastes like. Mm-hmm. And goat cheese is white, whereas cow cheese will be yellowish. Mm-hmm. And the next one would be maybe... Uh, French Tom, mm. so that's a, a little bit more salty and tangy, mm-hmm. you might mm-hmm. say, than a Gouda. Mm-hmm. And then there's a cheddar, mm-hmm. so cheddar is crumblier and firmer mm-hmm. and saltier than the Tom. Mm-hmm. And then we get um, a smellier cheese. Mm-hmm. In Denmark, they have Danbo and they have a Vardy and, mm-hmm. and others that are stronger like that, mm-hmm. but they don't sell that here. You have to... Right. Get the recipe out of the successful cheese-making book. <laughs> um, let's see. And then some um, maybe Parmesan or an Alpine cheese like Comte mm-hmm. or uh, what are some others? Emmental, the one with the big holes in it. They tell how to make those both in my book. Okay. And then, and then the last would be whatever is the strongest and smelliest, so it can be blue cheese, mm-hmm. or nowadays in the U.S. they are selling cheeses that have a red gooey coating mm-hmm. called smear ripening, and mm-hmm. those are usually very strong, the ones that you get right. in the U.S. Right. They aren't exactly the same as the smear ripened cheeses in Northern Europe that I've right. learned how to make and tell how to make, mm-hmm. um, but they are delicious and they're mm-hmm. strong. Okay. So that's, that's ended up being about eight, and usually by the end of the tasting, my friends are overwhelmed, but they enjoyed it. Right. I've always learned that you're supposed to only bring three, but I can't do it either. I can't, it's like three is impossible to pick. It's like yeah, I mean, <laughs> so there are too many children. Good. There are too many children. Anyway, yeah, thank after a while, you. you can't taste them, but they can keep them all in the refrigerator and enjoy right. them later. Oh, and they can, yeah, they can come back to them. Well, thank you, Meryl, so much for being on Cutting the Curd with your very thorough and long and heavy successful cheesemaking book. I really appreciate the chance to talk to you about it. Thank you, Diane. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.